0: Welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we look in more depth at the passage that we explored on Sunday. I'm Dave Mears. I'm Seb Lane. Now, um, Mandy's not here. Mandy's... uh, at a conference, and hopefully having a, having a great time. But that's also why Seb and I are finishing this on Tuesday at seven AM. You can because, tell, Mandy. isn't yeah, <laughs> Yes, we did about four or five <laughs> takes yesterday, and, and didn't quite have the uh, the fluid, machine like efficiency no. of of, uh, of Mandy. So here we are. We're doing it this morning, um, and we're looking at Mark eleven. What did we look at on Sunday?
1: Now, yesterday you were preaching, Dave, and we were up to Mark eleven twenty seven through to chapter twelve, verse twelve, and we were looking at the authority challenge that Jesus. Uh, was in a sense ambushed as he came back to the temple and challenged by the temple court, by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, and they really took him to task. Where where does your authority come from? And uh, Jesus gave that parable of the tenants uh, to which you drew attention, um, to the idea even in your introduction about the squatter, mm. yes. and uh, yeah. and just just here are uh, here are these. Uh, here is the persistent, patient owner of the vineyard, God, mm. who's given whose 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 vineyard belong is Israel, mm. and yet they keep rejecting His messengers, and they're fruitless. And right off the back of actually coming into the temple in Jerusalem, um, and yeah, the fig tree, yeah, and the yeah. fig tree, Jesus yeah, isn't persistent happy. Persistent themes, that's right, and uh, and and yet at the same time, there was the encouragement at the end of your sermon um, that that the Lord is the one who's able to. Make the rejected stone the cornerstone, and that message of hope as well um, for both the Christian and also the challenge for the non-Christian to respond to God's King.
0: Yeah, and not be a twenty-first century tenant. It's mm. uh, you look at what they did, and you go, "Must not do that." Now we're going to have a look, a bit more of a look at that today. But I thought we'd do three things, Seb. We Excellent. do, we do. First of all, um, we did promise that we would uh, address the prayer at the end of yes. the previous week's passage, so we're going to do that. We're going to look at. What, what what do we make of Jesus' teaching on prayer um, after the withered fig tree? That's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do is, is reflect upon... Th- this is the last major parable that Jesus tells in the book of Mark, and mm. parables have a really important role in the book of Mark. So we thought, um, given that we've been doing a, a series on Mark, let's think about what Mark does with parables and why this one fits. And then the third thing we, we thought we'd do is... Uh, Last week it was a fig tree, this week it's a vineyard. Um, just have a think about some of the imagery of God's people as as vines and, and fruit-producing plants, both a little bit in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New, and so I thought we'd do that. Sounds
1: so fantastic. That's fantastic. That's,
0: what, that's what's in store for us today.
1: Now, just before we do jump into it, Dave, tell us, chapter 11, verse 26, what's happened to it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if how many of you um, who are listening noticed it that the previous passage finishes at 25 and the next one starts at 27. And then you sort of go, oh, what, why is that a typo? And then you actually, if you look in your Bibles, you go, There is no verse 26. It just moves from 25 to 27. Here's the reason why. This is one of these reasons why we actually go, modern translations are good Mm. and they're better. Yes, dare I say it, maybe not as fluent, uh, wonderful high point of the English language as King James Version, but they actually are better Bibles. And they're better Bibles because they're dealing with better texts. So the reason why um, verse 26 is not there is verse 26, there's a footnote in the ESV that will tell you what verse 26 um, originally said. And that is, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your responses. And so you might remember that at the end of the prayer, um, there's an encouragement by Jesus after the fig tree to, to, um, to turn to God for forgiveness. And then, so it gives that extra line there. Now, here's the thing. Mark's gospel doesn't have a Lord's Prayer. Matthew's and Luke's do. And so uh, um, all of the earliest manuscripts, which we now have access to, all of them don't have verse 26. And it is only later manuscripts that do have verse 26. The the, the versions of the Bible put together in the Middle Ages, the, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, the things like... Um, uh, the King James Version in the um, in the sixteen hundreds, uh, that was they only had access to later texts. We now have access to earlier texts that are actually better, mm-hmm. and it is all scholars agree. Uh, well, that's always a worry. <laughs> You're always got to be wary about saying that. But but the the scholarly consensus is that verse twenty six was added in by somebody else to try and harmonise Mark's account with what um, Matthew's in particular has and so to try and go well because there's no lord's prayer bit i think this bit should be in there because it makes an important point let's add it in now we don't want scriptures that some bloke in the middle ages decided oh i think it should say this we want what was actually written Mm -hmm. and we've got a better account for that than the king james version did and so rather than do all the renumbering Modern translations just drop it altogether. Yeah, so Excellent. there you go. So there we, that's go. So we haven't lost a Bible verse. We haven't lost a Bible verse. We've actually got a more accurate Bible. Fantastic. Yeah.
1: All right, let's jump into number one.
0: Yeah, so what do we make of Jesus teaching on prayer after the withered fig tree? Now, I might ask you to read. Uh, so, so the way it works is remember um, uh, Jesus is on his way up to the temple after having um, the triumphal entry. He sees a fig tree, doesn't have fruit, curses it, goes in, cleanses a temple, tells the Pharisees off, and the teachers of the Lord and the elders, and then he comes back, and then Peter observes that the fig tree is withered from the roots. And that's and the mark and sandwich? That's the mark and sandwich, and then we get this prayer. So do
1: you want to read that? For verse twenty two? Yeah. Have faith in God, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So you can see that bit about forgiveness at
0: the end there. That's the bit that the extra bit was added. Now, what I thought we'd talk about first is, remind you why that, if if it's not immediately obvious, why that's tricky, okay? Mm. First of all, Uh, Peter's observation related to the withering of the fig tree but Jesus' response isn't about the withering of the fig tree he suddenly responds to Peter's observation by talking about the power of prayer it seems Mm. like a non sequitur why does he do that? Jesus didn't pray when he cursed the fig tree it's not Lord curse this fig tree it's Jesus cursing the fig tree and he just speaks to it um, and Jesus' words happen Uh, Peter did not ask teacher show us how to curse stuff effectively well, of course, if you could, if you want mountains to go into the sea, you can really rip some good curses out if if you follow my techniques. The, it's, he's not doing that. No. Um, the second thing is, if the cursing of the fig tree was, as we've talked about it, an enacted parable, the Mark and sandwich about God's judgment of Israel, that's demonstrated by the cleansing of the temple where God is actually withdrawing from the temple, the fact that the fig tree was withered from the roots, the temple is going to be removed, God is removing himself in a sense from the temple and the temple is about to die. Um, now that seems clear that that's what that whole section is about. So how does suddenly teaching, Je- what Jesus teaches about prayer, how does that fit, fit together with that broader message? Yes, that um, does seem clear. So it's a bit strange for that reason. And then the third reason is, is actually the content. Mm. So it seems so absolute about the guarantees about getting what you ask for um, that it can take us into disturbing directions. Um, and that is because the prosperity gospel teaches... Uh, the health wealth guys, mm. use this very passage to justify their doctrine of the force of faith. That that is, faith is, it's, it's not about the fact that you believe in God and God can do everything. It's the fact that you will get what you want if your faith is strong enough. It's all about you and the strength of your faith such that you name it and claim it. You don't say, um, Lord, I want." could you please do this? Uh, you, you sit there and go, I claim the car. Mm. that you promised me and so speak about as if you've already got it and they do appalling things with that and and basically use prayer to justify greed and here's a greed formula and we go that can't be what it says because of what the rest of the bible says about prayer so but this does seem to be what jesus says there so so that's what the problems are so what you and i have said with with in planning this, what we thought might be helpful is actually to go, how do you go about trying to nut out what this does mean? Mm. Now, a bit of a clue. If you find it tricky in your head, well, guess what the commentators do? Um, One commentator I looked at just completely avoids it. It's like the pred wasn't even there in it. And this is a commentator that's well-known. I won't name them and shame (laughs) them. (laughs) Um, Another commentator comes up with a a slightly odd way of explaining it that we'll mention in a moment. And they come up with all these things and find it very hard to nail down. So if they're finding it hard to nail down, don't be surprised if you do. But what we thought we'd do is try and show you a bit of a method about how we we've gone about mm. trying to go. What's this on about? And hopefully that would be helpful. So what we thought we'd do is first of all think: Are there any? Is there some historical context that we don't know about that might explain Jesus' wording? The, the commentator that we said, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm sold on that, this, this was a, a thing that he posited might be the case. Uh, it's all about the Herodian. Mm. Now, King Herod, as you might know, Herod the Great, was, was quite well known for his ambitious building projects, the temple itself uh, and the remodelling of it being, being a big part of that. Well, the Herodian was a fortress that he built and he built that fortress by chopping off the hill, top of one hill – moving it over to another one and then building to build his artificial fortress. So even today, you can go to Israel and you can see the Herodian and it's got this wonderful little, um, what do you call it, Uh, a a beautiful, even shape to it It's because it's an artificial mountain. Mm. And that, Herodian can be seen in the distance from the Mount of Olives. And so this commentator speculates that maybe Jesus is talking about mountains being thrown into the sea by sort of going, well, you know all, and you can see what Herod did and with his power. Well, let me take that up a notch and say, if you trust in God, uh, forget moving a mountain from one hill to the to the neighbouring hill, you could take it and throw it into the sea, and of co- the Dead Sea is also visible from the Mount of Olives. So he says maybe that's what the reference is. What do you mm. think of that as an option?
1: Yeah, it's one of those, I mean, it feels like a lot to swallow. <laughs> it's one of those ones you read through, you go, oh, is that, is that it? Oh, hold on. <laughs>
0: it's like this bit of special knowledge, and, and it's not that we don't want to detach the scriptures from their history, history or or their, and their geographical mm. setting. I've often found that actually quite helpful but this feels like it's a little a bit, bit of a stretch. It's it presumes that they were looking in that direction that it was the reference and that there wasn't another reference. Yes. So the mountain I, the yeah. mountain
1: is it's it, there's a lot of writing on the mountain <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah. is it you know is it the mountain Jesus is standing on is it the Mount of Olives is it the Temple Mount is yeah, it a mount hypothetical mount mountain Jesus that's referring right. what's to this mountain this mountain yes. exactly
0: right. So um Uh, We think if you've got to go there, you've probably gone to a place that yeah, maybe, maybe not, it's not convincing. So um, the better foundation is actually to go, look, is there a scriptural heritage that Jesus might be alluding to Mm. in this? And so there are a couple of options, and I mentioned one of them um, in the sermon. And so with what we thought we'd do is actually have a look at these. I think there is a lot more to it and there's two in particular one is one you want
1: to deal with the context as well yeah, don't yeah, you? yeah, they, yeah. They, but these are verses that end up easily being isolated from their context yes and then used used for whatever way because people want to the use very them question we're asked. that's right that's why right. is it
0: there and i think when we look at these two things rather than going oh he's he, he's calling up something from the past he's calling up something two events from the past that do relate I think in different ways to his context. Mm. So the first one is one Kings eight. This is the one I mentioned on on the Sunday. This is the part where if if what Jesus is doing with the fig tree and with his cleansing of the temple is in a sense shutting the door on the temple, saying the temple's days are are, are over. It's a decommissioning. It's a decommissioning. Uh, it has an obvious parallel, and that is what happened at the commissioning. It's mm. the beginning. There's a book ending of the story. Of the temple and, and this place of being God's symbolic presence with his people. And, um, and the beginning of it is 1 Kings 8, uh, the, the temple that was promised to, Dave, to David says, I'm going to build a temple. Um, Nathan says to him, No, you're not. Your son is going to. And then Solomon goes about, the son of David goes on and builds it. And then, when at the great commissioning of that temple, mm. Solomon gives a teaching about prayer. And so we've got a very similar situation. So what I thought is, I'll explain basically what happens in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of 1 Kings, verses 6 to 11, in a sense, God arrives in the new temple. So it's one thing to build it. It's another thing to know that God recognizes it (laughs) for what it is. And that is very clear in verses 6 to 11, right? A cloud fills the temple as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of God's promises to his people, the symbolic place, the throne of God is put in the Holy of Holies, a cloud fills the temple, just like it did in the tabernacle in the the Exodus. And that is God saying, I am here. And uh, and in verses 12 to 26 of chapter 8, Solomon then gives in response to that obvious recognition of the Lord that this is his place, a... a, um, uh, he, uh, he, it's a prayer to God in a sense celebrating the, the fulfilment of his promises to David. Mm. And so uh, um, it, the building by the son, that is Solomon himself, the implication in his prayer that the God will then continue to do what he also promised David, that the throne would never leave the house of David and, the, and that the eternal king would actually come from that line. And so there's a, again, there's a messianic yes. reference in this same context.
1: Then, um, Keeping the bit, in mind the, the Bartimaeus entrance that Jesus had, absolutely. that he's the son of David and he's come into Jerusalem and he heads straight to the and temple. And what do the
0: crowds call out? This is the coming of our kingdom, the kingdom of our father David. So, so this is very much in view in the context. Um, then you get 1 Kings 8, and I'll read. A, you'll read a bit here from verse 27. So do you want to read that? This is, quite, this is the beginning of the prayer.
1: But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be opened toward this temple, night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive.
0: Okay. So you can see how, at the commissioning of it, the great prayer of Solomon is that those who look towards this place where God says that the symbol of his covenant with his people, mm. that looking towards that place and praying in faith, I guess you could say, towards God in that place, that God would answer their prayers and that he would also forgive them and have mercy upon them for their, for their failings and for their sins. And so you've got, again, the context of forgiveness is there. And um, it's quite a moving, as well a recognition that this does not house God. God is bigger than this place. Mm. But that idea of focusing your prayers and having confidence in it because you're looking to the place where God has demonstrated he's made his promises. So it's, it's allied to the confidence you can have in God Again, similar context. Mm. Um, Now, in the next, there's about, it's quite a long prayer, the next sort of parts, um, Solomon then breaks his prayer down to a whole bunch of different circumstances that people might be in um, and asking God when they turn to this place and pray, do x or y right so again locking that in and then the conclusion of the prayer is from verse 52 if you could just read that for us
1: may your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people israel and may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you for you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance just as you declared through your servant moses when you sovereign lord brought our ancestors out of egypt
0: yep so whenever they cry out to you there's a a slight absolute sort of thing, not the same as, as, and I think that's deliberate, um, Jesus does a how much more um, in his prayer. But I, I think you could see the parallel. It's set. a big deal, for, isn't it, for yeah. Jesus
1: to come and decommission yeah. the temple.
0: He decommissions the temple and then what does he do? He comes back and says, but don't think that that takes away your confidence. Mm. Um, you can ask whatever because if you have faith in God, he will fulfill it. And, yes. and so you, you do see this strong parallel of setting and there is a, a neat salvation history appropriateness to Jesus talking about prayer after he's done what he's done. Mm-hmm. But there's another passage that when you read it to us, I think a lot of people, it's quite confronting. Mm-hmm. There's some awful descriptions in there. Um, but it is from Zechariah chapter 14. And again, what we'll find here is there is a, a strong correspondence of location. So Zechariah 14 is has got the Mount of Olives actually in view and talks mm-hmm. about it. Um, and uh, and there's also similarities in elements of content. There's mountains,
1: there's... The Lord s- coming, sea, Jerusalem. There's the Lord
0: coming, there's Messianic there's stuff there. And so there's a very strong setting which also Jesus might be drawing upon here. So um, as Seb reads this um, and you're listening, have a think... D- What do you reckon? Do you you think Jesus is alluding to this? Um, Have a read of it. Um, We're going to read nine verses.
1: Zechariah 14 verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by any mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over all, over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and His name, the only name. Yeah.
0: Now, there's a here's a few reasons why I think mean, you and I are pretty convinced that that there is
1: this is background. This
0: is definite yes. background, and and Jesus is is drawing the the imagery explicitly from here as well. Um, first of all, Zechariah is used a fair bit in the broader context. Mm. So uh, we, we he quotes Chapter nine Zechariah in, in, in chapter nine. Um it's it's there in the in the quotes in the triumphal entry. Zechariah thirteen is referenced in Mark chapter thirteen. Fourteen, so, so yep, fourteen, yep. 14. Um it, and so you what you have is is um Zechariah is being used by Mark already.
1: Yes, it's in Jesus' framework. It's of in Jesus' frame of thought. Yep.
0: So so there's good reason to think why it might be. We're talking about Mounts of Olives, we're talking about mountains Moving, mm. they're not necessarily being thrown to the sea, but, you, but you've got, you've even got. Cosmic um, things like living water and, and the, the Lord's reign. So what we're talking about here, this is a passage that is like the book of Revelation. It's mm. it's apocalyptic in language. And it by nature deals with the last days. Mm. It, it is a, what we call an eschatological passage. It's to do with the, the, the end times. Now, what we need to understand is that theologically, you might remember this, you're in the last days mm. right now. And we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. From the day Jesus died on the cross and then three days later rose again and ascended um, uh, after that, we are in the last days. So what what the setting of actually Mark 12 is on the cusp of the initiation of the last days. Mm. And this is a last days passage. It's got Messiah. It's got all of this sort of stuff. And um, and even I think it matches up the big language of Mark, mountains being thrown to the sea, even the absolute language of the fulfillment of and the answering of promises is and we're going to talk a little bit about this in a couple of seconds, about mm. the the use of hyperbole that Jesus is using is fitting for such an eschatological and apocalyptic context. Yes. So um so I think there's strong reasons to think that Zechariah is 14 is very much um being referenced. Why? Because in this teaching of prayer we're being drawn to consider that the last days and the and the days of the actual kingdom really coming mm. are imminent, and, and and that 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 is a new era, and that's going to have implications for prayer.
1: And it's the context that's driven you to yeah. come to that, that. as in, Jesus does. It's not does... foreign. It's not some, no. some
0: random scripture search. Yes, that, that goes. Oh, Mount of Olives mentioned there. Mount of Olives. Now that's a bit of a clue. Yes, but then you've got to look at other things, and you go, Hank, hey, There is way too much in Zechariah fourteen that, that is, corresponds to the situation that we're in here. And so that means that you're going, I think we're onto something. I think this is actually good theology and Bible reading rather than grasping at straws yes. um, because the correspondence is strong. And there is something to be – there's something deep about the correspondence. That's where I you – know, if you're trying to get senses as to whether you're, you're on the right thread mm. or not, mm. it's those sorts of things, not just is there a word that's in common. Mm. Um uh, now, the other thing is is that the best help is Mark. Yes. So, um, uh, now, we've already mentioned that Zechariah is in the broader context, but what else might help us to understand um, how, how do we let Mark speak about what this prayer is doing here? What are some of the things you think belong there?
1: It is interesting that uh, if you can think back to the last time we were – up a big mountain in Mark's gospel. It was that uh, towards the beginning of our series, the Transfiguration event, where after six days, and then the seventh day, Jesus and three of his disciples went up the mountain. And then if you remember that incident when they came down the mountain where there's a boy possessed by an impure spirit, the disciples, the other 11, or the other, what was it? (laughs) (laughs) Ten, however many, <laughs> <however many. laughs> the other, the others they can't rest. they can't drive out this demon and uh, it's just interesting that um, uh, when Jesus actually speaks to the boy's father how long has he been like this from childhood uh, if you if you can't do anything take pity on us and help us and Jesus picks up on that if you can everything is possible for the one who believes and uh, and then goes on to privately teach his disciples about the importance of prayer. Mm. Uh, we've been hearing about the nature, the importance of praying to a God who's able to do the impossible mm. already. And we've been seeing his, Jesus prepare his disciples for the need for faith. Mm. And uh, And we've also seen from verse 19 in that passage that Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, mm. they're, they're a faithless generation. So that in the context of Mark, it's just interesting to pick up that that's a earlier incident that then when you go to the parallel transfiguration passage in Matthew's Gospel, mm-hmm. Matthew 17 actually ends on the note. Uh, so you go transfiguration again, the boy, the boy, uh, Jesus heals, the demon-possessed boy. And at the end of that, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20 of chapter 17, he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So now that is, it leaps out
0: as a a parallel saying of Jesus at at a different time. So he's repeated this idea. So what we're getting is Jesus teaching we mustn't rip, Jesus' prayer out of its context in the book of Mark, where we've already had sustained teaching and calls to understand what real faith looks like. We had what the is, rich, what mind. is just trust mm-hmm. to God. What what is impossible for people that the possibility with God? So so that impossibility, of God. And as you were just about to mention, then remember the rich young ruler. Um, well, he's not a rich young ruler in Mark. <laughs> the, rich, the rich young man comes up to Jesus. Um, goes away sad. The disciples say. Uh, well, then, who on earth can be saved? And Jesus says, "Well, with man this is impossible; with, with God, all things are, are possible." Yes. And he's, even his example of the camel through the eye of the needle, where you go, it is absolutely impossible. <laughs> it's an impossibility. God can do what is possible if you yes. trust Him. So, so this teaching on prayer is thoroughly consistent with Jesus' rhetoric and teaching about trying to grasp how God can really be trusted. Mm. And to what extent, even up to, so so it's it, it's a great lesson in not ripping things out of context. Mm. Which of course, can I just say the prosperity teachers do again and again and again, and is why you don't trust them, and you can as far as you can throw them. So, um, and so, and it picks
1: yeah. up on why in chapter eleven Jesus begins straight after the victory you curses with it, verse twenty two. Have faith in God. It's like yeah. the prosperity teachers. So they have faith in faith. Yes, that it's, is it's, exactly it's right. It's the object of your faith. It's not your faith that has power. It's God that because has all the power. Because God can throw
0: mountains into the sea. That's right. And so um, I, I think what what we're finding is is that um, you've got to let you've got to let context speak. Mm. You, you've you've got to think about language that, as well. The, yeah, that the, the New Testament is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So you've got to see things that, and you've got to let language as as you know saying you've got to let language be language you've got to let if Jesus is talking about being mountain, mountains throwing into the sea you don't have to be You know, you're not, there's a hyperbole to that a, a clear hyperbole yes. about it because yes of course God has the power to do it but no mountain has been thrown into any sea in response to the heirs, uh, prayers of someone in the 2000 years since Jesus said this and I don't think he intended it to be right it's, it's language he's saying yes you can trust God as far as this because God actually could do that God could smash planets together forget mountains mm-hmm so so um and and if he's and if he's being using extreme as much as this language mm. within in the mountain in the very same prayer this the blanket anything believe you've already got it and it's yours is is in the context of big language mm. and and so we it's a forced reading to go um Oh, so if I if I really really believe that God is going to give me that house, or God is is going to um, uh, cause my, the, that paralyzed person over there to walk at my command, um, he might do that. He has power to do that, but we mustn't use this passage to force him to do that. It's no. it's, it's abusing the language that's being used. Um, what? But what? What do you think? Are the – to, to bring this discussion to a close? I know it's been big, but it's it's actually a great lesson. And, and, and case study on on biblical interpretation. but let's bring it back to the ministry of the word. Um, what do you think we need to take home from that prayer?
1: Well, I think it just ought to stir us to pray that, <laughs> that we have a God who is able to do the impossible, And uh, and keeping in mind that parallel in Matthew 17, as faith as small as a mustard seed Mm. can move mountains, and and it's not because it's our faith; it's because we have faith in God who
0: can move mountains. Who can move
1: mountains? That's right. And so, uh, it's an encouragement to uh, toward faith-filled prayer, where we we have a high view of God, and I think we need to keep this passage in mind in the light of. The rest of the New Testament's teaching on prayer as well—that yeah, that it's that we pray as Jesus did uh, at Gethsemane, not my will be done, but your will be done—and um, and yet there is a boldness with which we pray the impossible. It's and a
0: correction to praying fatalistically. Yes, that that kind of uh, I know God could do everything, but I don't actually believe He's going to answer my prayer. Mm. And who am I to think that He might because I'm but a worm? And you know, but but that kind of fatalistic prayers. That where we say, in your will, but we almost are praying, assuming that God's going to say no. Yes. And and I think that's not the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament is you can pray, and Jesus, very explicitly here, pray with confidence that mm. God can do what you've asked of him. Yes, the fuller message is, because you can also trust him that when he says no, it's a good thing as well, and it's actually a, better than if he'd said yes, that's why he said no. But, but the point here is, had, actually have confidence, and even if there isn't a temple there that you, you, you've got there to look at, um, it doesn't need to be there for you to have faith that God is actually going to answer, like like with um, Solomon's prayer, yes. because actually God himself has now become flesh and dwelt among us. We've got something far greater to look mm. at than a temple. So hopefully that's helped really bring it. Uh, hopefully it's encouraged you to... to, to Verbalize your faith with your prayers to to pray in humility, but at the same time and in, in humility
1: confidence. because of the relationships as well. Jesus, yeah. you know, it's interesting. That it does end on that note of forgiveness, yes. and that that our our relationships with others mm. and whether or not we're holding a grudge or not forgiving others has an impact on our prayers as yeah. well. So that yeah, was that's it. right.
0: Now, the second thing that we wanted to do is to look at how Mark twelve and the parable of the tenants is a fitting. Final major parable. Given the the way Mark teaches from Jesus teaches from parables in Mark's gospel. Mm. So um, now tell us, uh, just give us a bit of an overview of parables again. Re- refresh our memory about the nature of parables in in, in the gospels.
1: Yes. Yeah, so gospels uh, record sixty different parables of Jesus, but most of them, interestingly, are in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Uh, I expected more to be in Mark's mm. gospel, but actually surveying the word and looking back, there's far fewer in Mark's gospel, and then there's none in John's gospel. Mm. Um, parable itself, uh, it, 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 the word itself means to illustrate a truth, especially through comparison. And for Jesus, in his parables, the most common subject is, as we've been seeing in Mark, the kingdom yeah, of God. kingdom of God, yeah. Uh, and often he's illustrating it, though, through a parable by episodes from everyday life. And so hence you get lots of the agricultural imagery. Um, they're simple and yet at the same time confounding. They, <laughs> they divide their hearers. They knock, knock people off balance and help them to see in a new light altogether. And uh, thinking back to last year when, Dave, you preached on... Mark 4, I think it was, mm. and use the illustration of the stained glass window that that on to the outsider, they see something that's dull and lifeless. To the insider, um, thinking now without the projector screen, we see on a good and sunny day mm. something that's brilliant and radiant. And uh, you can see the full picture. And in a similar way, Jesus's parables have that effect as well.
0: Yeah, they, they make things clearer actually for those on the inside and again thinking about that strong theme in mark's gospel of insiders and outsiders which we've spoken at about at length and yet is is dull for those on the outside so it's got this clarifying and and alienating um function at, at, at one and the same time i, I think um uh, I, I mean, I personally can't can't claim to have come up with that stained glass window. That was a guy called Edwards, but it was um, it is a very I find that a very helpful yes. image. Yeah, and, it is and it's really good for that. So, what about the the, the parables in Mark?
1: Yes, so articulate? Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel, you get a little cluster of um, parables. It, it ain't, the word itself only comes up thirteen times. Mark chapter three and four. Mark three is where it begins, and we'll look at these in a moment. Um, but that it comes up nine times in those two chapters. Then once in Mark seven. Uh, twice in our passage Mark 12 in verse 1 and verse 12 and then there's a brief mention actually in Mark 13 which we'll look at uh, shortly as well. So starting in Mark 3, um, Dave, do you want to read to us uh, from Mark 3 verse 22
0: down to verse 27? Sure. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables.
1: So, just interestingly, keeping in mind that the last parable, uh, the last main parable, chapter 12, the parable of the tenants, again, you, Jesus has been confronted, uh, and, and we're heading towards a peak in Mark's narrative um, of opposition and hostility. And that's kind of where we began with the first parable in Mark's gospel as well. It's not like he tells a whole lot of parables to his mates. No.
0: Um, it, it, it's in that confrontational setting from the word go. Yes. Yep. Yep. And
1: we see that even more clearly in chapter 4 when you get the parable of the sower. Uh, do you want to read just a little bit yeah, of the parable of the gospel? Yeah, is
0: called, isn't it, the, the, really it's the the parable of parables. Mm. is the one that really unlocks what, certainly in Mark's gospel, what, what he's doing what with their it. purpose and function so is. So where do you want me to read from?
1: Uh, from verse 2.
0: And what should we be listening for?
1: Uh, we want to be listening, uh, picking up on the hearing and believing, the yep. kingdom of God theme, uh, and also keep in mind, have a little ear out for the harvest and the fruitfulness theme as well. Okay. He taught
0: them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil It came up, grew and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some a 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and he's quoting here, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. And ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Now you want me to read the explanation of it too? Yes, there we go. Cool. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. That sounds a little bit like the rich... Young man, doesn't it? Mm. Um, others like seed sown on good soil. Hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Uh, he said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has
1: will be given more.
0: Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him.
1: So it's interesting, Ed, if you've got that in your mind as you think about this last parable in Mark 12, there's some interesting things that come to light. And I think you alluded in your sermon, Dave, about the way that these teachers, elders, Pharisees are interacting with Jesus. There's a disinterest. Disingenuity in the yes, way absolutely. that they're yeah. engaged. They're not listening. They're not here to be taught. Um, they're it's not he- penetrating at no. all, or it, being
0: reflected upon, or considered. Yeah.
1: No. It's it's like the word is sown, and Satan comes and takes that word immediately from them. And, yeah. the, and there's a hostility in which they're approaching Jesus. Um, and yet Jesus's word to insight is is to have a fruitful effect. So in the context of going into the temple and finding that the house of prayer has become a den of robbers and that the fig tree isn't producing the fruit that was mm. intended for it here, here there's a, um, where there's a fruitlessness, mm. um, in, uh, whereas Jesus' word is his parable, his word, his kingdom effect is to produce fruit mm. and not just fruit, but a harvest and a plentiful one as well. That's right. Um, there's one uh, uh,
0: just later in that same bracket. Um, so th- we remember we looked at it last year. There's like five teaching points. Um, the, the fifth one is the one about the, the the tree that grows up in the garden, and the birds of the air come into it. And so that same bracket of of, of parables ends with the parable that talks about those that are outside the garden actually taking rest in the garden, and the kingdom of God is like that. So even then, you've yes. got this sim- sense that. Um, something is going to be given to others. Others will benefit from what previously was fenced
1: in. Um, and in Mark four, there's the Isaiah quote yeah, yeah, yes, as well. That, yes, yes. What we
0: were we saying? Isaiah six. Isn't Isaiah right? six.
1: Yeah. They may be ever seen, but never perceiving; ever hearing, but never understanding. And so, same
0: of, section of the prophecy of Isaiah
1: as Isaiah five. Exactly.
0: Exactly the same context.
1: Yes. So there's a hardening effect mm. that that Jesus' parables have, and we see that in Mark twelve, where at the end they they it serves to only um, make them more determined in their resolution to deal with Jesus.
0: Yeah. So anything else we want to say on the parables? I think Very really briefly. it's helpful to say. Yeah. yeah.
1: Very briefly, there's one occurrence in Mark seven um, where Jesus gives a parable uh, and uh, it, what he's saying is nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Uh, so it's interesting there um, after he left the crowd and entered the house. His disciples asked him about this parable. Um, so there's there's a parable where you, where you see it's not the outside, it's not the external. It's not the, mm. if you've got that in your mind, and then the temple as well, we're, we're sort of seeing that what's going on inside the hearts of Israel's leaders mm. is not great. There's yeah. There's a, there's, um, it's uh, from it's, yeah from within, it's within what, yeah. That's right. There, there's there's a murderous intent. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you skip out of a Mark 12, and that's our the the passage we're dealing with. Mark 13 is the last um mention, mention of, yeah. of the parable, and you don't pick it up in, in the English, but it's there in verse 28. Do you want to just read that that yeah. one verse? Now
0: learn this lesson, and that word lesson there is actually parable. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So now learn this parable. From the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Fig tree. Yeah, it's the return (laughs) of the fig tree. Return of the fig tree. (laughs) Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Again, you've got this eschatological end times kind of thing. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never
1: pass away. So there we go. There's a bit of a sweep of the use of parable in Mark's gospel. Helps us to be thinking about what is going on in this final kind of Mark 12 parable where Jesus, where Jesus mm-hmm. goes back to Isaiah mm-hmm. to speak about the vineyard and, uh, and we see that actually it serves the purpose that it has the whole way along mm-hmm. um, of keeping those on the outside, even more on the outside, even at the same time as we see that the outsiders are going to come in inside themselves. The Gentiles are actually going to serve. Uh, Gentiles in God's plan actually are Coming in, to go And to the, kingdom. The, the
0: parables have taken us now all the way through to this. Um, now the age is turning, it's like they yes. have served their purpose. They've taken and the and the and the parable of the tenants is a is a nubby, it's
1: a nutshell, isn't nutshell, it? Nutshell, yeah, nutshell.
0: So here's our last section. We're going to just have a bit of a reflection about about fruit and the metaphor of, of, of God's people as being fruitful. And it turns up in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, it's not the only Old Testament references, as we've already seen, that, that are on there. There's some that may be in the background. There's some that are definitely there. Of course, Psalm 118. And I, I think we, we've worked out that Peter kind of really liked Psalm 118, Mark being, in a sense, Peter's recommend his recollections, his his testimony, and uh, it's stuck in his head because it comes up a couple of times. It's referenced a couple more times in the New Testament, and guess who by. Uh, so, do you want to read? What's the first one?
1: Yeah. So Peter actually picks up on the Psalm 118 reference a couple of times. The first one's in Acts chapter four, verse eleven, where it's Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands to address none other, than, uh, to address them, and says, "Rulers and elders of the people." Exactly, and same people. That's exactly right. And <laughs> so then, Jesus
0: did it. He used Psalm 118 when Peter's opportunity comes after the after the resurrection and ascension, and he's called to give testimony against hostile the same hostile people, he pulls out Psalm 118
1: again. So what does he say? It's right after he's healed a lame and blind man. He says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved.
0: I, I, there's two bits I love about that after Peter is just sorry I was moving away from my microphone there uh, after Peter and John have just done the impossible yes, um exactly. you know <laughs> they made a you know a, a layman walk um and uh, by the power of Jesus uh but the other the other thing is that he even sharpens it doesn't he He says you builders rejected so yes. he inserts the uh, the second person into the um into the Isaiah quote because he's under no
1: doubt as to who he's talking about. You builders are rejected, <laughs> and he's become the cornerstone. Right, what's the second reference? The second one is in Peter's letter in 1 Peter 2, uh, and we, uh, verse 4 and verse um, 7. Uh, seven so, that's it. Yeah. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall.
0: If you think, what is Jesus the cornerstone of? What imagery does that belong into? He's a cornerstone of a new temple. Mm. And uh, it's 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 quite it's quite no powerful. surprise. Peter
1: yeah. Kephas the Rock is yeah, <laughs> stuck the with rock. him. <laughs> He's stuck with the stone. He, he
0: he loves that imagery. So so there's a Psalm 118. Um, um, Peter's favourite Psalm. I'm wondering. <laughs> um, uh, so so the next bit I thought we'd just briefly look at is is the is the Old Testament use of vine metaphor. Because we we've just it.
1: been doing a fig tree, and now it's the vineyard in the parable of the tenant and. And you mentioned so made this mention
0: idea it. of fruitfulness, and what we'll, we're just going to look at a couple of passages very briefly, and just notice that the context is actually the same, um, and it's always this idea of producing fruit and being slightly disappointed by it, and it often has a reference to the leadership. So um, we read the first part of Isaiah five on on the weekend. Do you want to read it to us from verse seven? We'll just read a, a few more verses after that to reinforce the message.
1: I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland.
0: So so we really do see that it's even broader than the reading we got that whole picture or, or is in Isaiah 5 is is his own view even the, the language of inheritance comes in there you know again the parable
1: of the tenants wasn't a mystery well, um, what was surprising was that the vineyard theme it, I thought it would be right across the old testament yeah. but that wasn't the case no
0: it's it's not really it's it's um mainly constrained to Isaiah mm. um and and his use of it but but Micah references it as well, and he uses Israel's metaphor of a vineyard and it, it's also the same sort of message. Do you want to read Micah seven verses one to three?
1: What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that are. Early I grow. figs. Mm. <laughs> yep. The faithful yeah. <laughs> The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together.
0: Corrupt leadership looking for fruit. That's, that's the big use, the purpose of the use of the imagery is to say it should produce fruit, it's intended to produce fruit it doesn't, and it doesn't often because the leadership is wrong, mm. um, and and it is a, a profound disappointment to the God for whom that vineyard is precious or that fig tree is precious, that that His people. Um, uh, now, in terms of victory, that that imagery also comes up from for, about Israel. Hosea nine. Do you want to read just verses ten, verse ten for us?
1: When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree but when they came to Baal Peor they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved so
0: it's interesting you know how we talked about the Pagim when we Mm. did the fig tree that in both of these ones it's the early fruit that that's that's the bit so Jesus is going up looking for early fruit and he's
1: not there's not a randomness to what Jesus says yeah, or does yeah, no, that, that, or to that, the pairing of the fig tree and the vineyard right. here at this moment.
0: It's this profound disappointment in looking for something, the signs of a fruit to come, mm. the early fruit. So even though it's not the season for, for the main one, you're hoping to see the early stuff, as not there. So so you can see that there's a fairly consistent p- passage there. But I think what is especially powerful, and this is where I want us to end, is is seeing how Jesus uses it. Mm. Um, uh Time's going to stop us being able to really reflect upon the olive tree, but let me encourage you. I mentioned it at at at, um, at nine thirty uh, in the in the sermon there about how Paul uses the olive tree image uh, as a fruitfulness thing to talk about um, it, uh, the the Gentiles being grafted into what Israel has has provided. Have a read of that yourselves. Um, but I want us to finish with John fifteen, and this is. Um, Jesus may not say any parables in John, but but he um, it doesn't mean that he doesn't go into um, this sort of space. So do you want to read to us John 15, 1 to 8? And you'll see this is just...
1: It's a Christological focus, isn't it? Oh, one,
0: wonderful. So let's have a, have a listen.
1: John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples.
0: And if if, if Christ church has... A, a a church verse. It's John fifteen verse eight uh, that goes along with our mission statement. <laughs> but but the thing there is this: I, I wanted us to hear that because you, it, everything there is what we've already talked about in terms of Jesus um, teaching in Mark. But but what we see most clearly is that you know, you've got a fig tree that withers because it was. Um, it had withered from the roots. It had been detached from the God who gave it everything. And and Jesus is now talking about him saying, saying I am the vine. And so it's just an encouragement to say, yeah, we need to be bear fruit, bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? Never move away from Jesus. That he is actually the embodiment of the people of God. He is the vine. Um, we're not the vine, we're the branches that are always connected to the one who's the true vine, and that is Jesus. And that's probably a fitting place to to finish. So be fruitful, people. Um, I've been Dave. I've been Seb. So next week we're going to be looking at um, uh, continuing our journey in Mark, and so I hope you're looking forward to that.
1: See you next week. See you next week.